You're listening to the latest sermon from Our Saviour Lutheran Church in Fareham. For more information about Our Saviour Lutheran Church, visit our website at www.oslc.org.uk. oslc.org.uk. May God bless you richly through his word. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the second chapter. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you manifested the birth of your Son to the wise men by the rising of a star and guided them to Bethlehem by your Holy Word. So as we now meditate on your Word, please manifest your Son to us that we might be led to him each day and on the last day into your heavenly mansions. This we ask in his holy name. Amen. Amen. If ever you have to devise a quiz for a church, and I'm here now taking a bow out, throwing away one of my uh, trump cards here, um, you might ask the following question. In the account of the visit of the wise men in Matthew 2, how many kings are mentioned? And of course, if you ask this in a pub or maybe in a school, you might get an answer somewhere around four. You've got King Herod and you've got the three kings. 
But you know better that's not the correct answer, don't you? Because they're not three kings. And as people are never, never tired of telling congregations, we don't even know that there were three of them. We just know that there were more than one because it's spoken, they're spoken of in the plural. There were three gifts. They're nowhere referred to as kings. That tradition came up much, much, much later. They are major. They are wise men, according to applied translation, or maybe magicians or, or perhaps uh, astrologists, to be more precise. They're from the east. So that leaves King Herod, who's the only one who's referred to by a king. But there, again, Matthew is being rather polite. Herod the Great was indeed entitled king, but he wasn't really a king. Herod was a Jew, but only just. His father, if I remember correctly, had converted to Judaism when it was politically expedient to do so during the brief period of Jewish independence before the Roman invasion by Pompey the Great. For about a hundred years as a Jewish kingdom, the Hasmoneans and neighboring Sabbatean king from roughly where you now have places like Petra in Jordan on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea, had converted to Judaism. He married an Arab and she gave birth to Herod. So Herod was half Jewish on his father's side, but his father was a Jewish convert, not from, the, uh, from a Jewish family line. And he was only king because the Romans granted him that title. He was just a puppet ruler. He was essentially the person to whom the Romans had outsourced the, um, their jurisdiction in that region. He wasn't a proper king. The Romans didn't mind calling him a king because they were still pretending at that time. You had uh, Caesar Augustus, the great, who founded the Roman Empire. He was pretending that there was no empire. He was not a king. There was a republic. He was just the first citizen of this republic. And so he didn't mind other people being called kings so long as he had all the power. He was the actual king. He just didn't want to be called that because that would have been politically inexpedient for him. So it's all very well having people like Herod being called kings under his rule because we are Romans, we don't have kings, we're better than that. Let the hoi polloi, let the marginal people over there have their kings, as long as they do as they're told and pay us their taxes. Herod was a glorified governor and tax collector. He wasn't a king. So what do we have left? All the kings have disappeared from the story, even the ones who are called a king. Well, the answer to that question is given by the repet repetition of one particular word, which to us doesn't sound like a royal word at all. It sounds something different. Why did the wise men come from the east? They saw the star of the king of the Jews, and they had come to worship him. And that is repeated a little bit later on when Herod tells them to go and diligently search for the child and when they have found him to tell him so that he too might come and worship him. And then when they saw, found the house where Jesus was and they saw the child with Mary's mother, they fell down and worshipped him three times. 
worship is mentioned. So what? Well, isn't it slightly strange that they would come there, that a king has been born and these people get on their camels or donkeys or mules or whatever transport they used and they travel all the way from the east, wherever that was, long way, we can assume, far away from the reaches of Herod when they went home, so definitely outside the Roman Empire, they went all the way there to worship him. Is that what you do to a king? Next time you get invited to Buckingham Palace, the garden party, and you get, you're lucky enough to actually come across King Charles, will you worship him? What will you do? Well, may I suggest, ladies, that you curtsy, and gentlemen, that you bow. And if spoken to you, speak, and you shake hands if offered a hand. That is worship. The term that is used here which translates worship throughout the New Testament, is a word that the Greeks first started using when they observed how the Persians, the people of the East, behaved. Unlike the Greeks, who also pretended that they were a democracy and they didn't have kings, they observed how the Persians and other Eastern kingdoms were not like themselves. First of all, they were completely uncultured because they didn't speak Greek. They speak foreign languages. Terrible. But not only that, but they, have had, they had customs that seemed to them very strange. They seemed to them indulgent and effeminate and altogether distasteful. And one of them was the worship of their kings. And what that actually meant was that when people came into the presence of a king, they, to use a, a slightly old-fashioned English term, they, they made obeisance to the king. That is to say that they made a physical gesture of submission and behaved in the presence of the king as if the king was not just an ordinary human being, but something more elevated, as if the kings were divine. And the way they did that was that they would get down and they would either kiss the earth before the king or they would kiss the king's feet. And that action gives us the Greek word proskineo, it's like sort of um, kissing forth, literally is what is translated as worship. Now we have these people coming from the east where they do this sort of thing and they come and they've heard that there's a king and they want to come and kiss forth to bow down and kiss the earth before this king. And for people of this time, this would have been a particularly uh, resonant thing to claim to be doing. Because, as I said earlier, the Greeks despised the Persians for this, but then something happened. There was a Greek king who not only fought the Persians, but overcame them. In the 4th century, Alexander the Great ruled for 10 years. He started out as king of Macedonia, and by the time he died at the age of 31, if I remember correctly, 10 years later, his kingdom stretched from India to Egypt. And one of the things that Alexander did when he went east, where all the wealth and riches were, is that he went rogue. He went native. He went native by allowing his subjects to worship him. He began to behave like a Persian king and not like a Greek king. And 
It was disturbing to many of his Greek subjects, but what could they do? This was the most powerful man in the world. His, his, his rule came, stretched from as far east as people could dare to imagine to all the way to the edge of the desert in Egypt. Biggest kingdom that anybody had ever thought of until then. And there we had a king from the west who behaved like a king of the east and everybody worshipped him. They put an end to that pretty quickly after Alexander died in many places. Although it continued in Egypt where the pharaohs were supposed to be divine, but they too were Greeks. So when these people from the east say that there's a king that has come, we have come to worship him, all these images would start flooding into the minds of people like Herod the Great, who knew his stuff. He had been educated and brought up partly in Rome. He, he, he hobnobbed with Cleopatra and Antony, and he, he hobnobbed with, uh, with Caesar Augustus. He was from the top echelons of uh, Roman culture, and he would have known exactly what this meant. That somebody had come all that way to recognize and bow down before, pay, make, make obeisance to a divine king. Somebody who's a human, but more than a, an ordinary human. And this is why Herod the king, when he heard this, was troubled. This was trouble for him, because he knew that he wasn't a proper king. And if there was a proper king around, he was going to be in trouble. And this was a man who did not, who did not have patience with rivals. He was willing to kill his own children if he saw them as a threat. And he did that. But he would also be in trouble with the Romans, because he ruled only by the a grant of the Romans by their gift. And the Persian Empire and the Parthian Empire on the eastern side was the continual centuries-old rival of the Romans and would be for many hundred years to come. And if this king, this sort of eastern king had arisen, this sort of Alexander the Great figure had arisen in Judea on his watch, on his territory, that meant war and that meant trouble and he was on his watch. No wonder Herod was troubled. No wonder that he would go to great lengths to get rid of this child. He was willing to kill all the children in Bethlehem just in case, just to get rid of this rival. So this sounds like a pregnant moment in history. This sounds like one of those things where empires rise and others fall. It's one of those interesting times which are fascinating to read about and terrible to live in the midst of, where things happen and armies move and kings come and go and a lot of blood is lost before the thing settles down again. That's how it sounds. That's how it feels. And that's not how it ends. Because we know how this story continues. There will be a flow of blood, but not of many people. Just the one. Because the wise men were right. The wise men were right to recognize that a king had been born who was a king who needed to be worshipped. That obeisance had to be made. That you had to, in his presence, come and acknowledge him as more than just an ordinary man. To behave in the, as if you were in the presence of a divine king. Because 
Unlike the kings of the Persians, this child was a divine king. And the fact that he was in Bethlehem and not in Jerusalem, let alone in Rome or Alexandria. The fact that he was in a house with Mary, his mother, and there were no guards outside, and there were no armies posted nearby, and there was no palace to be seen, no silk, no gold, didn't matter one bit. Nature itself, the, heavenly, the skies, the heavens themselves proclaim the glory of God in the birth of this child. And reading the signs in nature taught these men how we don't know, what sort of thing they were looking for. And then God graciously added to the signs in nature to his word by which they could find this child. The star brought them to the ballpark, roughly, into the right region. They came to Judea. Well, that's helpful, but there are a lot of children in Judea, even in little Judea. They knew what to look for, but they didn't know how to find him. For that, they needed God's holy word. And so, the scriptures were read to them from the prophet Micah. And they knew to go to Bethlehem. And signs and the glory of God in nature, combined with the word of God, led them to this divine king, this infant child, before whom the only appropriate action was to worship, to fall down. And this worship was not a mental exercise. It was not a, a, a series of sentences in one's head or a series of thoughts. It didn't even consist of prayers as such. Rather, it was an action of the whole person. What we see, you might, and you will see this in old paintings of uh, this scene, you will have old men on their knees, face to the ground before the Lord Jesus. That is what worship is. It is an action of the body. As our bodies and our minds come together in recognizing who Jesus is. Now, the remarkable thing about that word worship in the New Testament is that we see it repeatedly in the Gospels and a few times also in Acts. And almost without exception, it refers to what people do in the presence of Jesus when they recognize him for who he is. It's the thing that the returning um, Samaritan leper does when he realizes that he's been healed. The nine Jewish ones never come back. The tenth one comes back and worships Jesus. It is what people do when they recognize that Jesus is more than a man, that here is a, here is a divine king, a man who is also divine. And we see this again and again in the Gospels. And then all of a sudden, if you keep reading through the New Testament, the word disappears. It's hardly ever used in any of the letters of Paul. Once or twice only. A couple of times in Hebrews, and that's about it. A different word is used for what we call worship. And it, but then it re recurs. When does it come back? At the very end in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is once more seen in his body, 
And when Jesus is seen, then we see the elders in heaven, the living creatures in heaven, the angels in heaven, falling down and worshipping Jesus. Wherever Jesus is present bodily, there those who know him fall down and worship. They recognize him for who he is and they act accordingly. That, dear friends, is what faith does. It sees and it recognizes Jesus. I have no doubt that there is no figure in all history who is better known across the world than Jesus. You can go to almost anywhere in the world these days, even to the, uh, those parts of the world where Christianity has not yet reached, and you say the name, mention the name of Jesus, and the chances are that people will have heard that name. And that's a good start. But Herod too heard of the child. Herod too heard of the child, but he did not, although he claimed to, he did not had no intention, intention of worshipping Jesus or falling down before him and acknowledging his kingship. He wanted to extinguish his kingship. And what about those chief priests and scribes of the people who helped the wise men find Jesus? What did they do? Did they go to Jesus too and recognize his kingship and fall down before him? No, they stayed in Jerusalem. They just carried on. And so it is, and has been, throughout the world, history of the world, that many, many people hear of Jesus, and yet not all fall down before him. And dear friends, this is a great tragedy, because Jesus is king. Now Jesus is no Alexander the Great, who will raise great armies and, and slay anybody who stands before him, until he gets what he wants. Jesus is the king who himself was slain, so that by his dying, by his weakness, by his shedding of his blood, he might win over for himself a kingdom. He did not come to lord it over, but to be a servant of all, so that we might re receive in him the glories of God's kingdom through his humiliation. So that rather than subduing us to himself, by his power and his might, which he might have done. He subdues himself so that we might be subdued by his love for us. And so he was not embarrassed to be found by the wise men from the east in the arms of his mother in little Bethlehem. Indeed, it is in places of humility where Jesus is still to be found. And this is why the one place where between Jesus' earthly ministry and his returning glory at the final epiphany, the only place where people still worship Jesus, where they still do make obeisance to Jesus, bow down before him, not only metaphorically but literally, is in the Christian church. If we had, like the old church we uh, here used to do had an altar rail those of you whose knees would allow it would come and kneel before the lord and his bodily presence in the sacrament indeed you are welcome to do so without a rail uh, if you so we if you so please but by kneeling to receive the lord's supper we are worshiping him we are bowing down before him 
we acknowledge him as our divine king. But he who comes to us as our, as his, our divine king in the sacrament comes to give to us rather than to take from us. Not to collect taxes, not to demand blind obedience, but rather to give himself to us so that he might win us over through the forgiveness of sins by the renewal of our life by his life. This is the kind of king that he is. And you might ask yourself, well, how, does he, how is he going so far? How is the kingdom of Christ, how does he compare to the kingdoms that have been won over by swords and armies? Well, I am very pleased to report to you that the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the kingdom of Caesar Augustus, and any kingdom or empire that you might, might wish to mention, has been far, far outshone by the kingdom of Christ already. His kingdom and his rule is from shore to shore, from east to west, from north to south. Every tribe, nation, and language of earth has heard the name of Jesus by now, and there are, the Bible itself has been translated, at least in part, to over 6,000 different languages. And there is not a country or a continent where the kingdom of God has not yet reached in this world. And still it grows. Yet still it extends, still it gathers to, to the worship of Jesus. More of those, more creatures of God who are being saved by his mighty name. So on this Epiphany Sunday, of, as we remember the first manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles, as we observe their willing worship of the King, the Divine King in the child Jesus, we can give thanks to God that he has manifested his Son to us also, that that same word that guided the wise men to the infant Jesus is still being preached among us so that we too might be led to him by faith. And that same faith that brought their gifts and their worship to Jesus, that same faith has been granted to us by God's grace so that we may offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him and we may worship him, bow down before him, kneel before him, who is our king, and our Saviour. Kingdoms of this world come and go. Kings, emperors, queens, presidents, governments, they come and they go. But this one king, the only true king in our gospel and in the history of the world, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His rule is from shore to shore from east to west, from north to south. And his word shall endure forever. And those who acknowledge him as king by faith receive from him all the gifts and the benefits of his kingdom and his rule. And when he comes to impose his authority over all creation, we will be acknowledged as his own, as we have acknowledged him as ours. May God grant us such faith to the end of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. <coughs>